All right, buckle up. <laughs> because uh, if you're here for the first time this weekend, or uh, we're doing this Eat This Book series, we're going through the Scripture, and we're challenging you to daily do this. Take the Word of God, whether it's on your, your, your smartphone or your computer, or just old school, you have a Bible and you're opening it, and you're reading, and you're reflecting on it daily. And so we've been going, actually preaching through the Old Testament. We've come to the end of the historical books, and uh, we're coming to. We, I wanted to spend a little bit of time and spend this last time on the Book of Esther, and uh, it's an incredible book. It's got an incredible message. And the thing that strikes me about Esther is it's written so long ago, and yet it's such a contemporary book. It speaks. It speaks to our contemporary culture today. And that's what I want to look at. So uh, here's what I'm going to try to do. Let me tell you where we're going to go, and then we'll, we'll do it. I want to give you the historical context of what's going on. I want to walk you through the, just the general story of Esther. Then I want to land on a passage of Scripture and then take that passage of Scripture and apply it to our lives today. So hopefully we'll get that all done in, what, i got two hours left? No, I don't. <laughs> Anyways, that's what we're going to try to do this weekend. All right, so let's just uh, jump into it. So, a little historical background. The Jews in Judah and Jerusalem were carried off into captivity and exile by the Babylonian king. And it's a great name for your ch- child. And Carol was telling me we have five or six babies that have been born since Easter. <sighs> and I don't know if that counts too for Daryl. Probably it does. But here's a name, if you're just wondering, uh, for a, a child. Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, and you don't have to spell it. But uh, when he sacked the city, he destroyed Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. Uh, So the Jews were taken into captivity. And so now we have, uh, through time, a Persian king, Cyrus the Great. And 70 years later, he freed all of the Jews and allowed them to return to their homeland, rebuild the temple. Uh, They did that in 516, and that ended the the 70 years of captivity. So we have a new ruler, new world power, and the Jews have been in uh, captivity for 70 years. They're allowed to go back in. Not all of them went back into the Promised Land. The Persian Empire maintained a powerful hold over the ancient uh, East for 200 years. Uh, It ended when Alexander the Great, you probably learned about him in history class, conquered Persia in 380 B.C. at the Battle of Issues. So we have this change. Now the book of Esther tells the story of the Jewish people whom probably around 50 years after Cyrus gave the decree that they could go back into the land, some of them didn't go back. And it tells the story of those who stayed behind uh, and what, what was going on. And uh, basically the book of Esther takes place in the city of Susa, and that was the capital of the Persian Empire. So that's the historical background. It falls within that period of time of Ezra and Nehemiah, that, that uh, period of time. Let's walk through the story of the book of Esther, and many of you have read through it, but some of you haven't. In chapters 1 and 2, we're introduced to the main characters who are Esther and Mordecai, who are cousins. They happen to be, and we know this, to be, they were Jews. We learn how they, compl- they come to occupy their positions, because they have positions, fairly powerful positions in the Persian Empire. So when uh, the Persian queen Vashti, she refuses a request from her, her king husband, Ahasuerus, or he had another name, Xerxes. He called her in and asked her to come in and dance for the men that he had gathered together. 
she said no, and basically he disposed her as the queen. And so then they, that led to a Miss Persia beauty contest. And so all the, the eligible virgins from all over the kingdom were brought together and were, the winner was to be crowned the new queen to take over Queen Vashti's position. Esther was one of these young women. She was very beautiful, and immediately she found favor among not only the king, but all of the, the, um, the empire, everyone in the palace. And uh, also, she is a Jew, but Mordecai, her cousin, told her to hide that fact. And that's very important. Mordecai, her cousin, in these chapters, towards the end of chapter 2, here's a plot that is uh, two men who are, are planning to assassinate the king. And Mordecai passes that information on to Esther. Esther passes it on to the king. The king executes the men. And ultimately, the chapter ends with Mordecai not being um, rewarded for his actions. That's going to be important as we get later on in the book. So now Esther is a queen. Mordecai has kind of a formal position in the kingdom. In chapter 3, Mordecai is very devoted to God. And there's this third character that comes into play, and his name is Haman. And he's one of the, the higher palace officials. And it was, it was a, a common rule that when, when people like Haman went through town, everybody bowed down to Haman, except, you caught it, Mordecai, who was devoted to God and said, I'm not going to bow down to you. You're just a man. And this really ticked Haman off. It angered him tremendously because everybody would bow down, and there's Mordecai not bowing down. So enraged, Haman decided to plot the death of Mordecai. But instead of just plotting his death, he decides to take out the whole race of the Jewish people. And so he comes to the king and really kind of snookers the king and has him sign a, a decree. And it was a decree that was, in that day, uh, they would, uh, especially in this kingdom, they would sign a decree and it could never be changed. It was a law of the Medes and the Persians. And it basically meant once it's signed, it's done. You can't change it. And so um, the date of the slaughter of the Jews was given at the 13th of the month of Adar. And it was determined by the castings of lots, or another name for lots is Purim. And that's going to be really important because the Jewish people today still celebrate the festival of Purim. And you'll see how that comes together. Uh, we come to chapter 4, and now we have this sentence on the Jewish people, and the date is coming. And so only Esther has the personal influence in the audience with the king uh, that is necessary to prevent the tragedy. So Mordecai is urging his his uh, cousin, Esther, to go into the king to reveal herself to the Jew as a Jew and to ask for his help. But, uh, uh, and you need to understand, too, that no one was allowed to enter into the king's presence. Unless you were invited to come in, you, you couldn't just walk into the king's presence and you couldn't wait. She either had to wait to be invited or she had to go in on her own. If she went on her own and the king didn't tip his hand or his staff to her, she would immediately be executed. So it was a very dangerous thing. So it, was, uh, it, it, it could mean sudden death. Mordecai finally, and it seems as though Mordecai has to work pretty hard to convince Esther to go in to meet with the king. And 
she's brought to a position, and, and Mordecai basically has a phrase that he uses in chapter 4 and verse 14. He says, Esther, don't you understand that it may be that your queen, and he uses this phrase, for such a time as this. And that's really the key, one of the key passages is chapter 4, verse 14, if you want to underline it in your Bible. And Esther's response shortly after that is, if I perish, I perish. Now, three days later, Esther is approached by King uh, Ahasuerus. Uh, she approaches him, and, and, and he receives her. So that's good. She's not dead. And so she, instead of going and saying, I'm a Jew, and Haman signed this decree, and I'm dead, and all that, she does something very interesting. She invites both the king and Haman to dinner that night. So she has him over for dinner. And so Haman's all excited. I mean, here, here he is, the queen and the king. I'm having dinner with the king and the queen. And so they have a nice meal, and you think Esther's going to pull the trigger and say, hey, you know, this guy's a dirtbag, and he's, you know, got this decree, and I'm a Jew, and I'm dead. And, 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 but she doesn't. She says, here's what, I, here's what I want you to do, king. Here's my request. Will you come back tomorrow night? So... He says, sure, and would you bring Haman? Okay, so Haman is on cloud, you know, cloud nine. He's all excited because here he is. He's just had dinner with the queen and the king. He's a very special. And so as he goes through town and everybody bows down, guess who he runs into? Yeah, you got it, <laughs> Mordecai, and there he is. He's not bowing down. So he goes home, and he's just livid. And he, in his anger, he orders the construction of a 75-foot gallows by his, uh, outside of his home. And his intention is that, that Mordecai is one day going to hang from these gallows. That night, something very interesting happens. The king can't sleep. You ever have nights like that? Well, he can't sleep, and so uh, what he does is he calls uh, the men to bring his journal, and, and he has his journal read. And basically, it gives an account of what happened on a daily basis in the kingdom. Apparently, this was something that was very boring. I, I think he read it, so it would be very boring. He would just fall asleep, you know? I mean, so... Uh, but here's what happened. As they were reading through it, the account of where Mordecai warned the Queen Esther, and Queen Esther warned the king about the assassination attempt, he said, wait a minute, did we ever, did we ever reward Mordecai for what he did? And the answer came back, no, we didn't. So the next morning, the king asks uh, Haman to come in, and he says to Haman, he says, what do you think we ought to do to somebody who I just find incredibly important, and I want to bless them, and I want to just affirm them, and I just want to just lavish praise upon them. What, what should we do? And, and Haman thinks, it's him. So he goes, well, if, 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 if it was my idea, what I suggest you do is they ought to sit on a royal horse. And we ought to have a royal official pulling, you know, walking in front of the horse in a, in a procession through town. And the person in the front needs to say something, oh, I don't know, maybe something like, uh, uh, this is the person who the king favors highly. And walk through town and say that all the time. So the king says, I think you're right. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to be the person, not on the horse, but in front of the horse. And guess who's going to be on the horse? Mordecai! <laughs> and so he is just, he's just absolutely, uh, just incredibly, incredibly disappointed. And so uh, 
uh, the, the uh, night comes and he's invited to the meal and he's already had a bad day, right? And so in the middle of the meal, the king says, Esther, what's your request? She says, well, I'm about to die. What do you mean you're about to die? Well, there's a decree to kill my people and I'm a Jew. And immediately Haman knows he's in big trouble. So the king leaves the room because he's just, just, he's just upset. And because he's, you know, Esther's found favor with him. He loves Esther. He's a very, uh, he lo- loves her tremendously. And so he leaves the room and Haman comes next to, sits next to Esther and ple- begins to plead for his life. And when the king walks back in, it looks very inappropriate. <laughs> and so the king says, okay, that's it. You're dead. And so he's, he, he, sends, he, he sends Haman out. He, he, Haman is taken out. And he's, he's executed on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Outside of his house, he is hung. What's worse, or maybe what's better, is the property, his property is given to Esther who gives it to Mordecai, her cousin. So now Mordecai is living in Haman's house with all of his wealth and his power of position. Ah, we still have one little problem left. We still have the decree, the decree that the, the Jews are going to be executed, you know. And, and, and so what the king does is he says, I can't break that com- command because it's the law of the Medes and the Pers- which can't, Persians who can't be changed. So he makes another decree. And then the other decree basically says, the Jewish people are, are given permission in all the districts all over the kingdom to fight and defend themselves. And they do. And they push back the, the fight and they win. And basically the Jews have began, began celebrating the Feast of Purim. And remember that goes back to the lot that was cast by Haman as to the day when the decree would take place. So uh, the Feast of Purim is a, a remembrance of those two days uh, where Their sorrow was turned to joy. Their mourning was turned to celebration. And that's the story of the book of Esther. What I want to do now is I want to jump to Esther chapter 2. And I want to start reading because this is where we're going to pick up the story. Now, you've heard the story. So as we jump into this, you should understand where we're at in the story. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. And he was of the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimea. His family had been among those who King Jehoiachin of Judah had been exiled from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon by King, there it is, Nebuchadnezzar. You can call him Neb for short, I guess. Um, this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, uh, who is also called Esther. I like Esther better. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, among, uh, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Hegai's, Hegai's care. Hegai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. So um, 
obviously this is where we, we jump into the story. And I want to jump down in the same chapter just for a moment and just read another passage starting at verse 16 of chapter 2. Esther was taken to King Xerxes, that's Ahasuerus, at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh month of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all the nobles and officials declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young women had been, be, uh, been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's direction, just as, he did, just as she did when she lived in his home. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, uh, Bigthana and Tisha, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry with King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. So you see, these two people, these two men, guarded the, 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 the private chambers of the king. So they had access to him. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of the king of King Xerxes' reign. Now, what I want to do is I want to answer three what I think are really important questions that we have still today. And I think the book of Esther has something to say about that. Number one, the question is, is, is God there? Does he care? And is he working? Is God there? Does he care? And is he working? And, 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 and it's very interesting because as you read the book of Esther, there's no mention of God. God's name is not mentioned. There's no mention of prayer. Even when Esther comes to a point where she realizes she's going to go into the, the king's place, she says fast. She doesn't say prayer. Now, prayer is probably implied, but she doesn't say, you, you need to pray for me. She says to them to fast. There's no mention of God. Um, Esther... Uh, calls the people to fast. Instead, though, what, 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 and this is really important, what we see is that God is working behind the scenes. God is working in, in the midst of the circumstances. He's bringing a chain of events together. And that's what we want to look at. Look at the critical chain of events. Uh, and I'm, I'm calling this for such a time as this. First off, is the, if the king doesn't get drunk in the beginning, if he doesn't get drunk and, and, and call his wife, Queen Vashti, to come in, then we don't have an issue. If Queen Vashti comes in and dances, then she remains queen. If Esther isn't pretty, winsome, and desirable, uh, she isn't favored by those within the, the palace and favored and loved by the chosen by the king. If Mordecai doesn't overhear the plot against the king, the king is dead. If uh, the king immediately rewards Mordecai, then Haman is still a threat for the Jewish people. You see, these all run in, in, in some, there's, they're all very important. If the king doesn't welcome Esther into his court when she comes, you know, to invite him for dinner and ultimately to bring the, the truth to, to the throne, she would be executed. If the king gets a good night's sleep that night, Mordecai is never 
never uh, rewarded for his actions. Here's the point. Because all of these events came to pass at the right time, in the right order, the king granted Esther's request. The Jews were able to defend themselves, and they prevented the annihilation of their race. You see, what, we, what the author wants you to see in the book of Esther is God doesn't have to be blatantly in front of you. He can be working behind the scenes. He can be working through circumstances and through people. He can keep kings up at night. He can uh, make kings do stupid things. He can make queens do proper things and say, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. He can, he can do a lot of things. Because of that, uh, we see the idea that I want you to see is that even though you don't always see it, God is always working. And that wasn't just true then. It's true today. Now, we don't always see how it plays out. I get that. But God is always working. Today, we often wonder, well, is God there? Does he care? And Is he working? And the book of Esther affirms in a very resounding yes. He's always working out his perfect will often most of the time behind the scenes. Paul, or Paul puts it this way in Romans. He says this, We know that God causes everything to work together for good, for, uh, for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. He doesn't say that all things are good, but he says that all things will work together for good for those who love Him. That God has a plan and a purpose. That God can take evil things, bad things, evil plots, evil plans, and turn them around for His glory. And that's what we have to understand. So that's the first thing. That God is there, He does care, and He is working. Secondly, the question I have is, have the values of our time changed? Are our values different than the values of the book of Esther? Well, they're really not. Because if you come to chapter 1, what's going on there? Well, King Xerxes has got all of his leaders, all of his military leaders together in one place. And he's basically showing them all of his wealth, all of his power. He's showing them. And he wants to bring his wife in and say, look at all the beauty I have around me. I am the richest, most powerful, most blessed. I mean, I got it. I got it going on here. Now, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Why is he uh, accentuating wealth and power and beauty here? Well, he's doing it because he's about to embark on a military campaign for the Persian uh, Empire to invade Greece. And he wants to get all hands on deck. He wants the men around him to believe he's powerful enough, he's rich enough, he's smart enough to pull this off. Now, history tells us he wasn't, and he fails. And, but the, but be, that's beside the point. Um, he calls his queen in, and he wants to display her, her beauty. He wants, he wants them to see, you know what? I'm, you, sh- you should be like me. I'm, I've got wealth. I've got power. I've got beauty. I've got it all. I'm worthy to be followed. I'm powerful enough that you should listen to what I have to say. Well, you know what? That doesn't sound too much different from our values today. What is honored in our time? Wealth, power, and beauty. You know, we live in very different times, but I I would argue that our values are exactly the same as they were in the book of Esther. Let me give you an example. Forbes magazine lists the 100 most wealthiest people 
Every year they come up with a list. Last four years, the, most, the wealthiest person is a man named Carlos Slim. $73 billion the man is worth. Gates is number two. Gates was number one until he took over for the last four years. So we say, who's the richest man in the world? Well, we know who it is. Or People Magazine just came out recently with the most beautiful people, right? The most beautiful people. And I think this year they picked Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, we have a picture of her on the cover of People Magazine. She's the most beautiful person in the world. Uh, probably our countries that might argue that. Or Forbes Magazine comes out with a list of the 10 most powerful people. Very interesting. I didn't think this, but it made sense. The most powerful person, according to Forbes magazine, right now is our president. I don't think it matters who our president is. It happens to be our president. The point is, we value the same thing that they did back in the book of Esther. The question is, why is this so important? Well, I think it goes down to this. Beneath the desire for beauty, power, and wealth, is our deep desire to be loved, to be known, and to be valued by people. Every one of us wants to be known, we want to be loved, and we want to be valued by people. Every one of us needs to believe that our life matters, that we are valued and loved, and that somebody cares about us. And here's what I want to say to you, because I think it's not just young people, because we would say, well, that's what young people, no, we all struggle with this. Every one of us struggles with this. But in the end, you need to determine who you're going to get, who is going to determine what, if, if you're valuable, if you are significant, and if you are loved and affirmed. Who, who is going to determine that? Is it your boyfriend? Is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it your wealth? Is it your power? What is going to do that for you? Is it what the world can offer you? It is, is it what the world can offer you? Or is it what the creator of the world says about you here. And that really is, in essence, the biggest struggle that most of us have, is where do we draw our, where do we draw our value? Where do we draw our, our, uh, that we're loved, that we're they're valuable, that, that we matter, that our lives makes a difference? Where do we draw it from? Do we draw it because we're good-looking or because we have money or because we have some powerful position? Or do we draw it from the creator of everything who says, you are valuable because I say you're valuable. You're loved because I say you're loved. You're significant because I say you're significant. See, we have to determine where we're going to draw that from. Because there's going to be a day where we're not going to be pretty. Right? Maybe that day's already come. It has for me. I don't know if it ever came for me. But, you know, my point is, that, day is go that, that ship is gone. It's going, Right? And there, it has to be, it's interesting. And in the small group leader guide, I, I go to First Peter where Peter basically says, you know what? We're so concerned about this outward beauty. What about the inward beauty? I've met some really beautiful people that inside, man, eesh. I've also met some ordinary looking people that are incredibly beautiful inside. So, it speaks to our culture. So where do you get that? I think the same thing that they were struggling with in that day and holding up 
is the same thing we hold up today. And we run after that stuff. We say, oh, I wish I could be that pretty, or I wish I could have that much money, or I wish I could have that power. And you know what? The God of the universe says, you know what? I affirm you. I love you. You're valuable. Your life is significant. And plus, I'm working in behind the scenes of your life. I've got a plan and a purpose if you'll join me with it. Here's the last thing I want to talk about. Do I need someone to deliver me? You know, the book of Esther is an incredible book because it's strangely silent about the thoughts and meditations of Mordecai and Esther. You don't really know what they're thinking and how they're processing things. You can make guesses, you can make assumptions, but you really don't know. For instance, it seems as though Esther's kind of feeling pushed, almost shoved by Mordecai to go in and visit the king. She's like, I don't know if I really want to do this. And Mordecai says, you know what? You have to remember, you're a Jew too. If, if, if the king doesn't do something, you're dead just as much. It seems as though that's what he's saying. And it seems like she's hesitant to comply. So was she pressured? We don't know. That's, that's the beauty of how it was written. You don't know what they're thinking. Mordecai says to Esther in chapter 4, verse 13, because Esther's saying, I don't know if I should go in. <laughs> and Mordecai sent her this reply. He, don't you think, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. And then he says, who knows if perhaps you are made queen for just a time as this. Mordecai, basically what he's doing, he says, you know what, this isn't, a, this isn't an accident that you're at this place at this time for this purpose. Folks, I don't think that's just happened with Queen Esther. I think that happens in our lives on a more regular basis than we would think. And are we aware of the, the places and the opportunities that God gives us and says, for such a time as this. She finally agrees to see the king and she's going to bring a request, and she says in verse uh, 16 of chapter 4, I will go, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Now, you don't know what she's saying. Is she playing the martyr thing? or she? It doesn't seem like she's, you know, very interesting. I don't have time to go into this, but contrast what Esther is doing here with Daniel because they're virtually in similar situations. What does Daniel do? Daniel says, I'm not eating that meat. You're not making me eat that meat. We're not eating it. You know, Esther is like, I eat, I'll eat it. <laughs> you know, there's a very vast difference between the two of them. I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. They're just different. We don't know what she was thinking. We don't know if, if we, it may be she was an unwilling deliverer. She said, well, if I have to, I have to. If it's the only answer, I'll do it. I want to close by pointing you to a willing deliverer. One who gave up his wealth, his power, and his beauty for you and for me. He left his throne of power. He became ugly for us as he hung on the cross. Isaiah basically says he was not much to look at, Isaiah 53. And he did it out of an extreme and eternal love for us. The most incredible thing about all that is he did it because he wanted to. John, in John's 
gospel, Jesus says this, the Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Jesus gave his life for you voluntarily. He went into the garden that night and, and looked in, peered into hell and saw what he was going through and he still chose to do it for you and for me. Have you come to a point in your life where you find your wealth, your significance, and your acceptance is in Jesus Christ? You know, if not, you're looking at all the wrong places for the only one who can fill your soul. I want to challenge you to call out to Jesus tonight. The Bible says, whoever calls out in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's the only place you're really going to feed and fill your soul, fill your heart, your empty heart. You know, you may never be rich. You may never be beautiful. You may never be powerful. But if the God of the universe looks down upon you and says, you're valuable enough that I would send my son, you're valuable enough that, that he would give his life for you, you're valuable enough that I created you in my image, you're valuable enough, that should be enough. That should be enough. So where are you at tonight? Are you seeing God work behind the scenes? Are you saying, well, I don't understand. I don't like it all. I'm sure Mordecai and Esther didn't. Are you looking at the values that this world has to offer and just, just like a lapdog after those? Or are you looking beyond those and saying, you know, there's something greater and there's something more that sustains more than that, than anything this world can offer? And finally, have you found the ultimate deliverer, the one who willingly and voluntarily went to the cross for you? And for me, have you called upon him? That's what Esther has to say to us tonight, this weekend. Have you found the one who loves you and willingly went to the cross, became ugly for you, gave up his wealth for you, gave up his power for you, so that you could find healing and hope? I hope you have. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we have a Savior who came willingly and gave his life willingly. He, he gave up his power. He gave up his throne. He gave up his beauty. He gave up his intimate relationship with you. He cried out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did it willingly, voluntarily for us. Father, if there's anyone here tonight who just feels empty and not valuable and not loved and not affirmed, may they come to the one who created them in his image. May they come to the one who gave himself for them and find real wealth, real beauty, real power. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice for us, his plan for us. We love you, but most of all, we thank you that you love us, and that's why we love you. Amen.